Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And this morning we will conclude our study of the Christian's battle against Satan, which has been drawn from this text for several sermons, as well as from other texts of Scripture. <clears throat> we studied Satan's life, his methods of attacking us as deceiver and accuser, and we studied Satan's leash, the limits and limitations that are on him as a creature and as one under God's sovereignty and after Christ's total victory against him and over him. And as we come to the original outline of the first sermon, we come to Satan's loss, which you might think, well, that's Jesus defeating him. But what I mean is us fighting back and defeating him. So the original outline was Satan's life, Satan's leash, Satan's loss, and that's where we are now, Satan's loss. What can we do and what must we do to fight against our adversary, Satan? Well, let's read our text, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now that we know who Satan is, and we've studied a portion of how he operates, and we've been reassured by God's sovereignty over him and Christ's definitive victory, it's time for us to step onto the battlefield and to play our part in the war against the devil, which brings about Satan's loss. So I want to give to you this morning seven things that we must do and can do to bring about Satan's loss. Number one, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Obviously, this is drawn directly from the text. But I want to remind you again that this is the third time that Peter has commanded this. First was in chapter 1, verse 13, looking forward to the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, a sober-mindedness in light of Christ's return. And then he did this again in chapter 4 and verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be sober. And so each time, first, second, and third time that Peter commands us to be sober-minded, it's always in light of the, the coming of our Lord, the end of all things, the seriousness of the end of the world. But here in verse 5, something that's slightly distinct is that it, it's not so much in light of the, the imminent end, which is certain though unknown, but rather it's until that time, until the end, because there is a war until the end, because we have an adversary until the end, therefore be sober-minded. We cannot afford to be distracted. We cannot afford to be aloof or unaware if there is a war and if we are under attack and there is a war and we are under attack, therefore sober-mindedness is necessary. And to fail to be sober-minded can lead us to fail to accomplish what we need to accomplish. 
Let me give, give you some illustrations of how failing to be serious about something leads to ineffectiveness or unaccomplishment. The first example would be, I remember at a, at a different church, a man whose wife used to get upset with him, and you'd say, well, that's every man. A, a, man who's, a man whose wife would get upset with him because when it would come time to discipline their sons, he would start joking. He would turn what they did into a joke, oh, you did such and such, and start laughing with them, and it would just completely undo what was necessary, namely disciplining your children. And she would get frustrated that it's his responsibility, not exclusive, but in this moment, it's his responsibility to, to take it upon himself to teach the children, you, you must not do these things, and here are the consequences for having done them. He needed to discipline the children. But by making it into a joke time after time, it was exasperating for her because he wasn't taking it seriously. And so therefore, the effect was not accomplished. Or here's another example. If you're getting ready for a wedding, there's lots of little details and precise little things that need to be understood. They need to be known. People need to know what their role is, what their job is. And so you get the bride and the groom together, and then you have bridesmaids, and then you have groomsmen. <laughs> and oftentimes, or sometimes, it will be the case that you're trying to run a wedding, a rehearsal for the wedding, and the groomsmen are just joking around. And you want to wring their little neck or necks and, and say, listen up, <laughs> be serious. Yes, I'm glad you haven't seen each other. This is an exciting moment. There's a lot of emotion. That's great. But I need you to pay attention and take this seriously because tomorrow this is about enjoying the day for the couple and not ruining it because you say, where am I supposed to stand? What am I supposed to do? They need to take it seriously. And if they don't, what's the point of rehearsing this? the effect will not be accomplished. So also, if there's a war on, and there's a raging lion adversary who's coming for us, and we're not sober-minded, we don't take it seriously, what's going to happen? We'll be defeated. We'll be attacked and we'll be defeated by our adversary. To fail to be sober-minded is to set yourself up for defeat and ineffectiveness. And Peter has been impressing on us the, the seriousness, the importance, the end of the world, the, the return of Jesus Christ, our passions in our flesh that war against our souls. That's the language he used earlier. A cunning adversary, the devil, a fallen angel. What fools would we be to hear all of this and not take it seriously, to be silly and foolish in the face of sin? And we need to remember this, something that may surprise you, but let me explain it further. We need to remember that you can fall away from Jesus Christ. You can fall away from Jesus Christ, and you need to take that seriously. You say, Pastor, I thought, I thought that we're Calvinists, and we believe in the perseverance of the saints, and that's true, and we do. So let me explain what I mean. There's a difference between saying that you cannot fall away from Christ and saying that you will not fall away from Christ. If we're talking about ability, what you and I are capable of, we are capable of denying our Lord and falling away from Jesus Christ. It is something we can do. But for God's elect, they will not fully or finally fall away because God's preserving grace keeps them from fully and finally falling away. But insofar as it lies with you, you can 
Certainly deny your Lord. You, you can fall away from Jesus Christ. And if it comes to be the case that one of God's people is unmasked as not being a sheep, but rather a goat, how does that start? It starts by not being sober-minded, not taking God's commands and warnings seriously, not taking your enemy seriously, and possibly even relying on a false sense of security based on an abuse of true doctrine. The, the goat that is masquerading as a sheep is revealed to be false because they don't actually take any of this seriously. So what? Is it that big of a deal? A believer, however, does take these things seriously, is concerned by their sin, is worried about their own state, is concerned about their enemies, is sober-minded that there is a war on. We need to be sober-minded, though, because if we just think, well, you know, perseverance of the saints, I'm not going to fall away. You can. You may have heard something that says, if you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. And there's truth to that, but it can also be misunderstood or misused. The reason why you won't lose your salvation is because of God's decree and his power. But as insofar as it lies with you in and of yourself, you most certainly can. We praise God that he will keep us, but that does not make us presumptuous and lazy. It makes us sober-minded and diligent to fight and to run and to resist, which we'll come to later. The sober-minded father disciplines the children. If he's not sober-minded, they won't be disciplined. The sober-minded groomsman pays attention to the details of the rehearsal. Otherwise, the wedding for him will be a failure. Oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't in the right place. The sober-minded Christian watches, which is our second and next point. Number two, be watchful. Be watchful. These go hand in hand, and Peter and Paul both use them together. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Be sober-minded as you're awake. You're aware. You have your senses. Sobriety. We talk about drunkenness and sobriety. The sober man has his senses about him. He's not, his senses are not dulled and distracted by uh, alcohol. And so the sober-minded person is serious and aware, but the watchful person is looking. They're, they're vigilant. And we must be watchful for temptation and attacks. attacks. Uh, in the documentary, The Karate Kid, uh, Daniel learns a very special move from Mr. Miyagi called the crane kick. And incredibly, Mr. Miyagi asserts, if do right, no can defend. As a child, I accepted this as an undeniable truth. The crane kick is indefensible. If you do it right, no one can stop you. And the documentary shows it happening. The crane kick cannot be defended. However, it turns out the crane kick is not as devastating as one might think. So if you had to defend yourself against the crane kick, what would you do? Well, you would need to watch for it. If it's so devastating, you need to watch for it. How would you know that the crane kick is coming? Well, Daniel's son puts his arms up and lifts a leg, clearly signaling, I'm about to do the crane kick. And if the, his opponent is watching for this devastating crane kick and the person goes into the crane kick pose, what do you do? You just stand back where he can't kick you on his one leg. If you're watching for it, it's actually very easy to defend against it. 
all you have to do is look and see, oh, that's the crane kick pose, and take a step back. And then the other person is just teetering on their leg. All you have to do is watch. You just have to look. Sometimes all it takes is being watchful, seeing something coming your way and just staying out of the way. Just staying out. And then something that seems so powerful and indefensible means nothing. In the Christian life, there are many temptations that seem powerful to us. And at times, all it takes is looking, being watchful, and staying out of reach. If you're watchful for temptation, avoiding it can often be very simple. We also have to be watchful because Satan has so many devices to tempt the soul to sin or to keep the soul in a sad and doubting condition. We covered a few in one sermon, but there are many, many more. His arsenal is very varied, and so the more varied his arsenal, the more watchful we must be against the diversity of his attacks so that we can avoid them. And not only does Satan have a a pretty broad playbook of devices against Christians uh, carefully designed to attack specific persons, he's also thoroughly malicious and malevolent. Satan's not going to play fair. Think about the woman that he bound for 18 years with a, a bending spirit. Why did he do that? Because he's just a horrible being. He's malevolent. If you have an adversary in a boxing match or a mixed martial arts fight, there are rules that both persons have to respect. And so you know in that fight, there are certain things that each of you won't do or shouldn't do because of the rules. Well, this is a street fight. This is Satan versus you, and he's not going to be polite and gentlemanly and follow the rules of warfare for a given sport or engagement. He's going to do whatever, anything and everything, to make your life miserable and to tempt you to sin. If that's the kind of adversary you're facing, you have to be watchful. This is not a man who's going to shake your hand and say, good game, well played. This is someone who's going to do everything they they can do to, to punch you in the gut and then punch you in the face when you're least expecting it. Thomas Brooks said this, He said, "'Tis not the most knowing Christian, but the most wise Christian that escapes Satan's snares." You can have a great store of theological knowledge and yet be a fool against sin. We must be watchful and wise against the wiles of Satan, our adversary. He's deceitful. He's dangerous. We must be watchful. And our watchfulness is not only predicated on the maliciousness and malevolence of our enemy— and that he has a varied arsenal of of devices, it's also based on the return of our Lord, who declared in the Gospels, blessed is the servant who is found diligent and faithful when his master returns. And so our watchfulness is not just against sin and Satan, our watchfulness is also looking for the return of our Lord so that he finds us faithful when he comes. Which again goes hand in hand with sober-mindedness. The servants who were not found faithful are the ones who said, he's not returning, he's not coming back. They didn't take it seriously, nor were they watching. Rather, they were presumptuous. We must be watchful and sober-minded so that we greet our Lord with joy, 
and so that we see our enemy and his attacks coming our way, and we stay away from them, or we defend against them with the word of God. Thirdly, resist. What can we do to bring about Satan's loss? We're sober-minded, we're awake, we're aware, we're watchful, we're looking out. And thirdly, seeing these attacks coming, we resist. This is from verse 9, of course. Resist him, your adversary. And I want to point out a contrast in the text between the preceding verses that we studied before and the verses that we are studying now, where previously we talked about the powerful hand of God that permits or sends afflictions our way. When the powerful hand of God is brought upon us, what were we commanded to do? Submit yourselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So God's power comes upon us, even at times with affliction, And we humble ourselves and we submit to God. But we have a completely opposite response here with Satan. When Satan and his subtlety and his power is brought upon us, we are told resist, which is the complete opposite. In other words, do not submit to Satan. When an animal submits to another animal or to a human, it stops fighting. To submit is to not resist. In a martial arts match, when someone taps out, what are they saying? They're saying, I will no longer fight. The match is over. I'm not fighting you anymore. I I submit. You win. The the tapping out is a submission. It's a non-resistance. No more resistance is coming from me. You have prevailed. We're told to submit to God. Do not resist him and his mighty hand. Humble yourselves and submit to him. But then we have a complete 100% opposite when it comes to Satan, where we're told, resist him and fight back. Do not stop resisting. Keep resisting, keep fighting, and never give up against him. And the reason for this diversity of submission and non-submission, non-resistance and resistance, is that we submit to God because we know that what he sends us is ultimately for our good. But we resist Satan with everything that is within us because we know that everything he does is ultimately for our destruction. And we've learned that Satan can tempt us, but he cannot compel us or force us. And so we need to resist he who can be resisted. In fact, the parallel passage of this in James 4 says what? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can resist and he will flee. Now, how do we resist? This has been spread out throughout the sermons. We looked at certain devices and how we counter those devices. We talked about not consenting, not since Satan cannot compel us, do not consent. We've talked about being sober-minded and watchful. All of that is forms of resistance. So we've, we've covered in various ways, spread throughout the sermons, the ways in which we can resist Satan. So let me add to those this. Resist from the first moment. Resist from the first moment. If you're sober-minded and aware and watchful, then from the first moment you realize there's a temptation, 
you need to resist. Thomas Brooks said this. He said, resist Satan's first motions. It is safe to resist, dangerous to dispute. It's safe to resist. It is dangerous to dispute. The moment you feel tempted is the moment you need to begin resisting. If you're on a diet or just living in a healthy way, and you go to where all the desserts are in the grocery store, what are you going to do? You're going to try to figure out a way to justify eating them. It's safe to resist. It's dangerous to dispute and say, hmm, is there a way that I can still enjoy this without breaking my diet, maybe, or only just a little breaking my diet? Or it's safe to just walk away. I mean, you could have a little chocolate. <laughs> but you see there, we all know what's going to happen to the person who stands there and calculates whether they can eat this. They're almost invariably going to, if you're looking for a way to figure out how to eat it, you're going to find a way to, to eat it. We know what happens when that person begins the debate. Where does that end? It ends in you getting what you want. That's where it ends. But if from the first moment you resist, it's over before it begins. And we have to remember your adversary in the first sermon I emphasize Satan as adversary, meaning he's active. He's trying to defeat you. You can't be passive because to be passive is to essentially submit, to not resist, and you will be defeated. If you go out onto the soccer pitch and you just stand there and wait for the ball to go into the enemy's goal, it's not going to happen. You have to make the ball go into the goal. You have to make the victory happen. So also, we have to resist from the first moment. If we sit there and, or stand there and dispute and say, hmm, I wonder. No, you have to be definitive and dis decisive. If you resist him, he will flee from you. But if you're not busy defeating him, he will be busy defeating you. And you need to resist from the first moment. Sometimes people express a, a certain feeling of powerlessness or helplessness against temptation. Temptation feels so strong to them, and one of the reasons why is that they don't start resisting until they have allowed themselves to be very tempted nearly to the point of committing actual sin. They've already had sin in their heart up to this point, but they're very close to committing actual sin, and then they start resisting. And they wonder why the fight seems so difficult. Well, it's like a leak in a boat or a snag in a garment. If you fix the little leak right away, very little water gets in the boat and all is well, which is much easier than bailing out buckets of water. Oh, it feels so difficult to bail this boat. Yes, that's because you let so much water in before you started dealing with the leak. Or a little snag in a garment that is not repaired suddenly becomes a large snag and, or a large tear. Whereas a little thing could have been repaired, a large thing may not be repairable at all. What's the saying? A stitch in time, time saves nine. Or it's better to prevent than to cure. When it comes to sin, we must not be like movie villains. You should probably never be like a movie villain, but what do they do when they get the bad guy, or when they get the good guy? When the movie villain gets the good guy, they play with them. They toy with them. They put them in a jail. They have a foolish jailer. They just do all kinds. They do everything but kill them. 
when the bad guy should just take the good guy and chop his head off. That's what we need to do with sin. No mercy. No playing around. This isn't a game. You just kill it. When the Israelites invaded Canaan and they fought uh, six kings in the initial phase of their conquest after Jericho and Ai, Joshua took the six kings and laid them on the ground and he told the other Israelites to come over and he said, put your feet on their necks. He said, thus the Lord will do against all your enemies. That's a breathing, living man on the ground and that's my foot on his neck. What is happening here? This is the invasion of a holy land that had an unholy people in it and God was cleansing it. We need to have that same mindset against sin. Put your foot on its neck and have no mercy and no hesitation. Resist. It is safe to resist. It is dangerous to debate. Don't think, well, it's okay. I've got the sin in in the jail. He'll never get out. You can't contain, you can't control, resist. We have the control when it comes to sin in the sense that it's up to us to choose to do or not to do, to choose or refuse. And so when it's up to you, insofar as things are in your power, don't sit around and play with sin as you devise some slowly controlled way to get rid of it. Be swift, be merciless, go for the kill, resist from the first moment. We said last, or two weeks ago, learn to say no. That was, that was the point. Here again, learn to say no from the first moment. The fight can end swiftly and without much struggle if you resist immediately. Fourthly, let's keep moving. Number four, be firm in your faith. When Peter tells us to resist, he adds two qualifiers. One is being firm in our faith, and the other is knowing. There are certain things that we need to know so that we can resist Satan. We need to be firm in our faith so that we can resist Satan. And I want to narrow down our focus on something. Would you please turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31? We might we could say we need to be firm in the faith, the Christian faith in general. That's true. We do need to be firm in the faith. But I want to particularize and focus on God's promises to us in the new covenant, which we need to believe and be firm in in our faith so that we can fight against sin and Satan. Jeremiah 31, look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. We're very accustomed to talking about the next promises in the covenant, the forgiveness of our sins, which is beautiful and wondrous, but we're not going to focus on that right now. We're going to focus on God's promise to internalize his law, to make his people desire to obey his commandments because the law is within them written on their hearts it is of their nature to obey it and to want to obey it not not perfectly but truly now turn with me over to ezekiel 36 
Ezekiel 36. Verses 26 and 27. Here again, promises of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. God says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will, re I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promises a new heart for his people. Regeneration, the new birth of the soul. And God promises that we who are born of the spirit will bear the fruit of the spirit. The new covenant gives us power from God to obey his commandments, to walk in his ways, to guard his statutes and obey his rules. God has promised to effect this. God has promised to do this. And so, brothers and sisters, to resist Satan, you need to be firm in your faith in this covenant promise of God to you, that he has promised to enable you to fight against sin. And so you need to step out onto the battlefield with the faith of David that giants can be felled with one smooth stone when God guides the flight. You have to resist by faith. You have to believe God's promise of power and holiness in the new covenant. I can't. I can't fight this sin. I can't fight this sin. That's unbelief. You need to believe that God is powerful and his promises are true and his covenant is faithful. And if he has promised a new heart and the law written on it and that he will cause us to walk in his ways and guard his commandments, does God lie? Is God unfaithful? Can God deny himself? No. God's promise of power to us is what we need to believe. And being firm in that faith, we need to fight against sin. Remember again the invasion of Canaan, part one, when they were supposed to invade the first time. What did the spies who gave a bad report do, and what were they accused of? They said, no, the cities are too fortified, the people are too tall, and too numerous, and too warlike, too violent. They look at us and we're grasshoppers. And so the people's hearts fainted and melted. And God says, it is because you did not believe me it is because you did not believe. God had promised them, this is your land, and I will drive out the peoples with hornets. I will make their hearts melt. I will, make, I will give you cities you did not build and cisterns that you did not hew and vineyards that you did not plant. I will do this. But the people say, no, the enemies are too strong. They did not believe. They were not firm in their faith. And so for us, we need to take Canaan. We need to fight the Canaanites firm in our faith, not firm in our faith in ourselves, I have the power, but firm in our faith that God gives us the power, and we do have the power by his grace to fight sin. I have faith in the new covenant that God has made with me in Christ, his promise of sanctification. If you are not firm in this faith, you will not prevail. You must 
know these things and be firm in your faith in these things. Peter also encourages us by reminding us of the common suffering of our brotherhood around the world. He says, knowing that your brothers are fighting the same fight everywhere. Don't think, I'm the only one. It's only us. We're the only ones who are facing this battle. He says, everyone is. And the church of Christ is winning throughout the world. His people are prevailing throughout the world by his power. Brothers and sisters, the power that took Canaan from the Canaanites, the power that took the Egyptians' plunder, the power that defeated Assyrian armies, the power that felled Goliath, the power that created the world, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, it's the power of one and the same God. When we go to fight sin, it's the same God who enabled the Israelites to take Canaan that enables us to fight against sin. And our brotherhood around the world with the same God fights the same battle. And as they prevail, we can prevail. As they have been faithful, we can be faithful because God is faithful. Paul also encouraged Christians by the the commonality of temptation. In 1 Corinthians 10, you know these verses. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, Paul says. They should be all the more encouraged to flee from idolatry because it can be fled from, because they can resist. You need to be firm in your faith. Do not disbelieve, but believe, brothers and sisters. And believing, fight resist. Number five, fear excommunication. This is not drawn directly from 1 Peter 5, but it fits. Part of being sober-minded and watchful and part of resisting Satan is fearing excommunication. Why does this fit? Well, In two places in the scripture, excommunication is referred to as handing one over to Satan. Because the church collectively declares, this one is not a sheep of Christ. This one does not belong to Jesus. Rather, this one belongs to Satan. This one belongs to the devil, and we commend him to his father, the devil. That's what excommunication is, but we need to remember that excommunication is always the last resort of church discipline. Church discipline is designed to protect, to preserve, to restore, and to recover the Christian. And where there is repentance, church discipline ends. So the persons that are excommunicated are those who have resisted correction, and refused repentance. And such persons need to know that they are being handed over to Satan. And they they need to know that they do not belong to the kingdom of Christ, but to the domain of darkness and its ruler, the devil. And they need to know that he will be glad to have you, but you will not be glad to have him. Satan will be glad to have you, but it will be a bitter having for you For God's people, he is a faithful father who disciplines his children. But he's also a merciful master who forgives them when they repent. Whereas Satan, if he's your Lord, 
He promises happiness, but he has none to give. Happiness is possessing good. Satan has no goods to give you, except for fleeting pleasures that turn into bitter, horrible discomforts. Satan promises peace to you, but has no peace to give. Rather, those who are with him will suffer with him, first in hell and last in the lake of fire forever and ever. We need to be sober-minded and watchful because to refuse correction, to refuse the discipline of God through the local church is to fail to be sober-minded, is to fail to be watchful, is to fail to resist, it's to fail to be firm in your faith, it's to be reunited with your true Lord all along, Satan. If the Christian fears that, the Christian has a, a healthy fear, not me, not me, I love the Lord, not me, I love Jesus Christ. But the goat says, how dare you, how dare you, how dare you say that about me? They're proud. Sixthly, stay close to the caravan. Stay close to the caravan. Peter reminds us that we have a brotherhood. Christians are not individual, uh, isolated units. Are we all individuals? Yes. But we're not isolated units. This is, this is such a problem for the American church. Not just Americans, but it is for Americans. Individualism is a huge temptation and problem for you and for me, who me know. Yes, you. All of us. Our country is so individualistic, so proud. But Peter says we have a brotherhood. And it's in the local church that we have communion and fellowship with the brotherhood around the world. And it's in the local church through encouragement and help and correction and strength and support and accountability and responsibility that the fight is fought against Satan. The church is the caravan on the way to Canaan, and we do well to stay close to it. Those who do not join the church, those who refuse to join the church, or those who absent themselves from the church, those who do not attach themselves to the correction and protection, the accountability and responsibility of their church, are making themselves huge, easy targets. And those who are sober-minded and watchful take the local church seriously as their commitment to it and the church's commitment to them. And we are most ready to resist Satan when we are walking with the faithful. And we make ourselves difficult targets when we stick close to the group. You must not underestimate the value and the importance of faithful attendance and vital connection to the local church. Of Jesus Christ. It is an incredibly power, powerful deterrent and protection for Christ's people. Sheep are not made, it is not even of their nature to just wander off on their own. Well, maybe it is of their nature to wander off on their own, but they're not supposed to be on their own. And if you say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, stay close to the caravan. Seventhly and lastly, rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. In a sermon that's focused on what we can do and what we must do to fulfill our role on the battlefield against Satan, 
it's very encouraging and refreshing to remember that we have a captain. His ministers are lieutenants, but we are all soldiers under one captain. And he went out onto the battlefield first, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's gone ahead of us, and we need to rest in him. I don't mean be inactive in him. I don't mean sit back and watch him. What I mean is that we follow him, and we rest in his righteousness, and we rest in his power, so that when we fall in sin, we are restored by his grace and his mercy and his obedience. And when we fight sin, we fight sin by his power. We rest in his pardon. We rest in his, in his power, both of which come to us in the new covenant in his blood. So when we step out onto the battlefield and we receive a wound, we fall in sin. We repent of our sin. We confess it. We ask for forgiveness. We forsake it. We stand up and we fight again. And we rest in the forgiveness that Jesus has given to us. We don't sit there and sulk in our sin. We say, I am forgiven. And then we fight. If, if a soldier is wounded on the battlefield and someone says, here, take this medicine of the gospel, it will heal you and you can keep fighting. They say, no, but I'm sinful. No, but I'm sinful. They're saying, no, take the medicine of the gospel. Rest in the promise of forgiveness. And if you look at another soldier and they're not wounded, but they're sitting there saying, I'm too weak, I'm too weak. You say, stand up and rest in the power of Christ. Fight in his power. The new covenant promises the law and the gospel. The law and the heart and the gospel to forgive our sins. And we need to fight with the power of them both. And we fight as those who do not earn heaven, but who need to fight all the way there. It's a fight all the way to Canaan. It's a fight all the way to heaven. And we rest in Christ that he has done this for us. And we are simply fighting on the way there. Not to obtain the inheritance, but on the way to the inheritance. Brothers and sisters, holiness is the path that we walk to heaven. And we rest knowing that it is Christ's righteousness and Christ's suffering that obtains it for us and ensure that we will arrive there. We need to be firm in our faith in Christ to enable us in the fight against sin as well as the forgiveness of all of our sins, knowing that every last sheep of the good shepherd will enter the fold. Brothers and sisters, resist in Christ and rest in Christ, and this will be Satan's loss. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for our captain, Jesus Christ, who has defeated our enemies, who has prevailed, who was innocent and obedient. And we thank you for the new covenant that you have given to us in his blood. We thank you for the law and we thank you for the gospel, the promise of your power to help us obey your law and resist temptation and the promise of pardon and mercy in the blood of Jesus Christ. You've given us everything we need, and we praise you. Help us, we ask. Enable us, empower us, and forgive us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.